Right, let's go ahead and continue in our lesson, in our study of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, uh, first of all, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to do this, and I always want to express that gratitude um, for a couple of reasons. One is last week, um, I, I said something, and Barb approached me afterwards, which I appreciate this, and I want you guys to understand that I, I think anybody who stands up here echoes the same sentiment that uh, it doesn't matter how long you do this or how much you prepare, uh, you're still you still feel like you come up here and know about one one hundredth of a percent of everything there is to know and that somebody else out there is going to you know, come back at you with something that you're not prepared to respond to. So um, I always welcome, um, I guess, challenges or objections. But anyway, I said something. I don't know how I got it switched up in my head, but that Lordship Salvation was, um, uh, I, I got the two categories confused. So Lordship Salvation being the idea that you must submit to God as Lord in order to be um, genuinely saved. That should be evidence of a true believer. And I was speaking about it the other way, almost like, um, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense now, but I had the category switch, right? So somebody who submits to Christ as Lord uh, would be somebody who submits to Lordship Salvation. That is what I affirm, not the opposite, right? But it might have come across the other way because I had my category switched in my head. So if you hear something that I say or you know notice something that I've mentioned in the past that doesn't sound quite right, I mean, I always I don't feel like you can't come and say something. I appreciate that. So anyway, with that uh, being said, can anybody else remember anything that was talked about last week? Anything that we mentioned that you can remember from your notes or from your member bank? We were talking about different evils, six different types of evils. Oh, yeah. Well, that was actually kind of a summary from the previous week, right? Well, yeah, but you're right. I mean, we, we, we kind of went deeper into that sixth characteristic, or not characteristic, but the sixth point, which was the alternative to evil, I mean, the uh, antidote to evil. So remember, in context here, especially if you haven't been with us, Paul has been talking to Timothy about what is to come. In the first two chapters, he's uh, kind of commending him, telling him this is how you ought to conduct yourself. And then when he gets to chapter 3, he starts to kind of launch into this warning about what is uh, potentially going to come Timothy's way. Remember that Timothy is living in the time period of Nero, the emperor of Rome, who was viciously... Um, uh, viciously persecuting the church. And so uh, Paul wants to make sure Timothy understands what he might face. And what I talked about was a couple of different characteristics of evil. And the sixth thing, which w was the kind of alternative to evil or the antidote to evil. How do Timothy, here's how you uh, avoid falling victim to apostasy, or here's how you avoid falling victim to uh, becoming like one of those false teachers. If you kind of can remember back to our earlier lessons, verses uh, two through five of chapter three. I kind of think is the more in-depth uh, description of the wolf dressed in sheep's clothing, right? It's the person that comes in, has an appearance of godliness, uh, has uh, maybe some deceitful ways of communicating, but he's persuasive, uh, and he even leads astray weak women that are burdened by sins and led astray by various passions. Uh, and, and basically, Paul wants to make sure Timothy, particularly Timothy as a pastor, doesn't fall victim to that same thing. And so when we get to verses 10 through 17, I think he's really giving him the, the antidote, the prescription for how he is to stay firm. Um, one of the things that I've made mention of several times over the course of, the, of this series is the or way in which I think 2 Timothy provides us with a blueprint or an instruction manual for how to stay, um, stay rooted, but to um, hold firm that which is fast. And Sorry, hold fast. That was, what, what's the verse I'm thinking of here? 2 Thessalonians, I've mentioned it several times. Um, hold fast. Fast that which is good. There we go. Sorry. Hold fast that which is good. So when we're experiencing persecution and trials, here's how we ought to conduct ourselves. And the three things that I mentioned last week were, number one, staying rooted, or you could say stay anchored to 
the, the plain things of the gospel. And I get that if you want the expository connection there in verse 14. In verse 14 of chapter 3, uh, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Right? This idea that if you want to avoid uh, being apostate or going apostate, uh, the best thing you can do is to continually remind yourself of what you have learned. Uh, he goes on to then say uh, how you from childhood have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you for salvation, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we want to stay rooted in the plain message of the gospel. The second thing was that we ought to observe the fruit or the behavior of the people who have taught us this gospel and have preached to us throughout our lifetimes. And that's important for two reasons. And one, it's important for the obvious reason of vetting uh, the people that we're listening to. We ought to evaluate their lives to see if they match the message that they preach. If somebody is preaching to me um, or teaching me throughout my lifetime and yet they're totally immoral and have no semblance of a Christian walk, then it ought to serve as a red flag or a warning sign to me that perhaps uh, this person hasn't been teaching the whole counsel of God. Um, but secondly, the other reason I think it's important, and I think Paul lays this out in verse 10, is that it ought to give us encouragement to see those who have been faithful saints go before us and endure hardship, trial, and persecution. Look at verse 10. Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So there seems to be this, uh, this, this point made to Timothy that, look, when you're going through this, remember that I've been through it too, and God has been faithful to me. He has rescued me from them all. And I don't think he's just talking about rescued me in a physical sense, but rescued me in the sense that he has not allowed me to fall victim to the snares and the traps that have just been described in the previous verses. So as you go through this, take heart. You know, that there, is, uh, there have been those that have gone before you, and, and when you observe their fruit and their pattern of life, it should serve as encouragement to you when you find yourself in the throes of, of the trials and tribulations. Are you going to say something? Also, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly. I think not only those that teach us, but we should think of that witness that we're putting forth ourselves mm -hmm. for those that, that might be watching us. We don't even know yeah. they're watching us. Yeah. You know, and as I thought about that, I thought, Eva, we're coming up on one year anniversary since she died, and she's mm -hmm. still making an impact mm -hmm. on how she taught us to die. And, and, you know, she didn't know that's what she was doing. Mm -hmm. She just exuded this is the way a Christian yeah. goes through this. Yeah, really good point. It's, it's two, or it works both ways, right? Obviously, we serve as, or those who have gone before us serve as encouragement to us. But hopefully, generations from now, you know, people will look back at Trinity Baptist and, and be encouraged by the faithfulness of our congregation as well. Absolutely. Uh, did I see another hand up for a second? Go ahead, Christy. Yeah. Verse six, where it mentions about being captured like weak women and being carried away. I think it's unspoken, but I think it's a call to men to like you need to get do better than what you're doing sure. to protect the women and teach them the right way. Yeah, and it is a charge to Timothy, who is a man and is a pastor, right? And I think there there is a pastoral element to what's being commanded there. Um, again, I think that. Paul is saying, you as the shepherd of the flock have a responsibility to ward off these false teachers. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. They're going to go in and they're going to find weak women who are led astray by various sins and burdened with passions and, and uh, take them uh, away from the faith. So absolutely. And yes, I do think, as we talked about last week in the sermon, you know, men are to be the 
pastors of their family. So that responsibility absolutely falls on uh, the man of the house to an extent. That's a clarity call against what the world's teachings. Yeah, it is. And we've obviously had a lot of discussion about that at Men's yeah. Breakfast with the book that we're reading, The, the War on Men. And it's, um, yeah, it's evident that really the I found one of those quotes in the book helpful that I can't remember it off the top of my head, but basically this person coming out and just verbatim stating, you know, our goal is to, to tear down, the, if we can tear down the family, then we can, you know, we can remove this moral obligation to obey any, any commands that we might find in the Bible, basically. Right? Um, and the third thing I said yet last week, which really ties into the first two points, is the significance of the Word of God. The significance of the Word of God in respect to the commands to stay anchored and to observe the fruit or the behavior of those that have taught us or have gone before us. I say that because uh, how do I know what I'm staying anchored in or rooted in? If I don't know the message um, that I'm supposed to stay connected to, then that is not a command that I can easily follow. We find the message in Scripture, right? And we're going to get into that more this week, but in verse 17 of chapter 3, it's well known and hangs in a lot of Sunday school classrooms, but uh, it says all scripture, sorry, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, uh, is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for, or sorry, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this scripture contains what we need to know if we're going to stay rooted and connected to the main message of the gospel. Uh, just a little bit prior to that, Paul talks to Timothy and says, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise into salvation. I mentioned the way in which I think in that first statement is really referring to the Old Testament and the way in which the message that had been handed down through uh, the, you know, the Old Testament had enough in it to provide Timothy with what he needed to know in order to be saved. It was the message of God's promise, working through his people, delivering them through uh, the ultimate Messiah who would come in the person of Christ. And secondly, when we're observing fruit of other people and we're trying to determine whether or not they are godly, uh, what's the benchmark? You know, what is the uh, grading rubric that we use to determine whether or not they're living up to the standard? It's the Word of God, right? And so Paul brings Timothy back to the Word of God uh, at the end of verse three. Uh, sorry, at the end of chapter three and at the beginning of chapter four, and he asserts to Timothy that this really must be central in your life, particularly as a pastor, but for anybody who desires to be an evangelist. If you skip ahead just a little bit in chapter 4, um, verse 5 says, Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So it's been mentioned already a couple of times the way in which, uh, the way in which this is a pastoral epistle, and yet there's something in it for all of us. I do think that the beginning of verse 4 is perhaps the most specifically aimed at the role and the job of a pastor. In fact, I think you could take chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and say this is just the job description of a pastor. And this is the job description of a shepherd. Uh, this is what you ought to do. And so today we're going to look at a few different things, um, the first of which is the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, The sufficiency of Scripture, and we'll pick up in the end of chapter 3. I've already read the verse, but uh, the idea that Scripture is enough to equip anybody for every good work, right? particularly pastors, but really for anybody. So the sufficiency of Scripture, looking at the idea of sola scriptura, I think this is a verse that uh, really brings that home. So if, if, just in case you're not familiar, you know, sola scriptura is the Latin for scripture alone. If you go back to the Reformation, uh, this was one of the linchpins of the arguments against the, the Catholic Church at the time, is that we have everything we need for life and godliness in scripture alone. We don't have an external authority that gives us more instruction. We'll talk a little bit about that. 
Um, also, the fact that the scripture is sufficient, meaning we don't need to continue to look for extra words from God that tell us what to do. We have everything we need to make us complete and equipped for every good work in scripture. Secondly, I already mentioned this, but when we get to chapter 4, we're looking at the, basically the job description of a pastor. Uh, and this is helpful for us. So I said this is really, I think, zeroing in on what a pastor should do. But what do you sitting in the, at the tables today do about it if you're not a pastor? Number one, it can tell you, I think, how you ought to evaluate those whom you're listening to. And hopefully we've done that here. And I think most of us, I mean, hopefully all of us, would agree that Pastor Tim takes it seriously, right? Uh, but it, it's still, you know, you listen to teachers or pastors other places. How do we evaluate them? Um, I think we got to look at this. Secondly, I think it's a good way for us to be reminded of how we should pray for our pastor. You know, pray that Pastor Tim would exude these characteristics, that he would be strengthened and encouraged in this way. And then finally, if we have enough time, we'll look at really one of the reasons why sound teaching is needed. Um, and that's found a little bit uh, further down in chapter 4. But before I get started, let me read uh, the text. And I'll start in verse 14 of chapter 3, and then we'll go to uh, verse 9, through verse 9 of chapter 4. Okay. And this be, as I'm reading, you'll know, be looking at things, and if you have comments or thoughts afterwards, feel free to share. So verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, what stuck out to you? What thoughts or comments do you have in reading that particular section? Anything? Another reminder, I think, of this And it's it's uh it's it does seem like we've tried anybody who still wants to hold on to um, the notion of Christian that they're Christian you know has kind of not not anybody but I mean we still have some that are faithful but it seems like in large numbers people are trying to make Christianity more palatable I don't know if anybody gets the newsletter from ABWE the missionary uh, I think that's the missionary organization for the Mansfields that um, we get but they in the email this week they sent out an article referring to the He Gets Us campaign, right? Did anybody see that at the Super Bowl? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah and kind of, I think, to the, to the point that you're making, it, it's an effort to, you know, make 
Christianity more palatable. Let's not confront people with the reality of their sin. Let's just you know welcome everybody regardless of their lifestyle. And I thought the article, I wasn't familiar with the individual who wrote it, but I thought he did a good job of you know, laying that out in a loving manner that, yeah, there's nothing wrong with, you know, washing the feet of sinners, but we also have to, you know, recognize that the message isn't going to be well received by the majority of people because we have to confront the reality of the sin. Right? Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, yeah, he ate with tax collectors and talked to the woman at the yeah. well, but, you know, you had this, at the end, this idea that, you know, go and sin no more, right? That's the, that's the message. Um, but anyway, uh, go ahead. Anything else to stuck out? Yes. Uh, if you look at chapter 4, the very first verse, mm-hmm. it says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. And it's a phrase that Paul keeps referring to when you read his letters, when he's speaking to the preachers. And this draws my attention to the fact that, you know, when pastors are ordained, they stand before God mm-hmm. and Christ, the judge, mm-hmm. the living and the dead. Yeah. And so you cannot go out there and then go about the business in a very shambolic manner. Go and then speak another message, make it palatable for people. When you know that the one who mm-hmm. has called you, you know, demands otherwise. Yeah. So I think. These are serious <laughs> words mm-hmm. that Paul uses to remind all those who, it's not just for preachers, mm-hmm. but for Sunday school teachers, for evangelists, for anybody who is in some kind of ministry. Because you are going to stand before the God, <laughs> of the, the judge of the living mm-hmm. and the dead. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we always remind ourselves of who has called us, we're talking about, I mean, I was talking to Chris, and we're talking about volunteering. When we serve, it's not volunteering. This is serious business mm-hmm. because we are going, we are doing it on behalf of the one who is judge of the living. I think that phrase is really very, very serious for us to think about. Yeah. It's not just meeting requirements. Amen. And I do think that's why that particular um, section is included there. I agree with what you've said that. It's just kind of a way to make sure Paul is getting the attention of Timothy that this is serious business we're talking about here, right? Um, he could have said, he could have commanded him to preach the word without including that, that preface there that I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, uh, who is to judge the living and the dead. But he includes that, I think, to say, you know, pay attention. You know, you might want to write this down. This is going to be a big deal at some point. So, um, yeah, I agree with that. Anything else that anybody had as thought or a comment in regards to what we read? If not, I'm actually going to start um, right there in verse 17. Uh, so we've, we've covered 14, 15, and 16 a good deal, but I just started there in our reading for context. But we, we've talked about, I'm sorry, I keep saying 17, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So first of all, uh, we need to go back and, and remember what we've already talked about here. Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the... Uh, identifying characteristic of Scripture. Uh, And this just means that there's no other revelation from God that is breathed out by God Himself. So to explain what I mean by this, I think I mentioned last week, and I forgot to even look it up. I don't have an NASB. Does anybody have an NASB Bible? I think if it's not the NASB, there's other translations that say all Scripture is inspired by God, which is okay. Uh, I mean, that, that can be a rendering of the text. The problem is that sometimes we misconstrue that. You know, I can be inspired by somebody and write something, 
Uh, that does not mean that that person literally spoke it into me. That does not mean that they breathed it into me, right? Uh, and that's really what we're talking about here. We're not just saying that somebody witnessed the life of Jesus and wrote something about it. We're saying that the Spirit of God spoke through these people, that there was actually God uh, directing their path. As Peter says, no prophecy came about by the will of man, but men were carried along by God uh, in the Spirit, right? So that's the distinguishing mark of what makes Scripture Scripture. And Paul says that that scripture that we just defined uh, is profitable for teaching. That is that everything that we do when we study scripture should have an element of instruction uh, along with it. It's not merely therapeutic. It doesn't just give us um, a, a pickup in life or a boost in our, in our ego. There is a teaching element to it. Uh, this is, I think, another call to remember that we ought to have doctrinal elements to our reading of the Word of God. Um, again, sometimes when you just do your daily devotions and you get these books at the Christian bookstore, and they, it's almost a way to kind of just make you feel good. I mean, there should be a teaching element. We, have to, we should be learning something. We should be understanding who God is, what He likes, what He dislikes, what He approves of, right? That's our theology proper. We get that from Scripture. We understand who God is because we understand that the Scriptures are teaching us something. It's not just for teaching, but it's also for reproof. Uh, later on in verse four, or chapter 4, it talks about rebuking somebody, almost the same thing, right? But when we read Scripture, we ought to feel reproved. Uh, we ought to look at our own lives, examine the way that we've been living, and say, wait a minute, where am I off, right? And any of you that are sitting in this room, and I never want to assume that everybody is saved, but if, if you can attest to the fact that the Lord has worked in your life and you've been saved, hopefully you've experienced that to some extent. I mean, if you haven't, maybe take that as a warning sign that you need to reconsider, right? This idea that I, I was living a certain way, and now I'm not. And even if you have the testimony of being saved at a young age, you can see the way in which the person who you were is not who you are today, and that through the understanding of God's Word, you felt the reproof that Scripture provides. And hopefully, you're sitting under a pastor, which we'll talk a little bit more in a second, who is, who is making an effort to do that. The third thing it says there uh, is it has the ability to correct us. So it doesn't leave us there. I think Carol mentioned this, Carol Litz, when she was here a couple weeks ago. And there were several places that mentioned this, right? Teaching us tells us what we should do. Reproving us tells us what we shouldn't do. Correcting us puts us back on the right path. And then training in righteousness, which is the last thing there, helps us stay on that path. But you know, the Bible doesn't just say, don't do this. It does give us the affirmative as well. Here's how you ought to live. And so we're going to correct uh, the sins of the flesh. We're going to replace them with the fruits of the Spirit. If you were on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, Stu went through that in Galatians, the fruits of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh, right? So we're approved for our, our, our attitude that says, you know, it's okay to lust and lie and live for myself, but we're also corrected and told how we ought to live in the Spirit with peace, love, joy, hope, gentleness, self-control, steadfastness, right? Um, and then it has the ability to keep us on track. And in some ways, we already talked about that. It keeps us on track through reminding us of our rightful place before God, the fact that none of us deserve the grace that is given to us each and every day. And so the Scripture is where we find that. It's not outside of God's Word. It's within Scripture uh, that we see that. Again, I know that's a popular verse, um, so I wanted to maybe open it up to see what other comments or thoughts people have. Do you guys um, have any other thing, anything else to add to what I've already said? If not, we'll continue on. Verse 17 then says, here's... What scripture, anyway, 16 says what it's useful for. 17 says that it is uh, there in, sorry, 17 says that it may make the man of God complete and equipped for every good work. Okay. Um, first of all, the man of God here, 
is more than likely talking about the man of God as in the, the pastor, the shepherd, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we, you know, we couldn't refer to ourselves as men and women of God, but I do think that it means that I was going to read just the, the commentary on that particular uh, verse so you could um, understand what I'm saying. Maybe. Man of God is a technical term for an official preacher of divine truth. And you can see notes on 1 Timothy 6.11 in the commentary for more on that. But when that term is used, it's typically used of an Old Testament prophet literally carrying the word of God uh, or a pastor or a preacher, um, an elder right, of the church. And so again, I do think Paul is getting at the idea that Timothy, the scripture is where you find your source of strength as a pastor. Um, this is enough for you to be made complete and equipped for every good work. I mentioned the idea of sola scriptura a second ago. Uh, that is the idea that scripture alone gives us what we need as a rule of faith, as an authority in our lives. And so we don't have an external body of authority that communicates to us the truth of God's word. Um, I believe that this verse highlights that for one particular reason. Does anybody want to guess at why I, what I'm about to say or why I think that? Okay. It's that word every, right? I, I do believe that um, in verse 17, uh, Paul is saying that the scripture will make the man of God complete and equipped for every good work, right? And if you really start to dig into the idea of some external authority, that is to say that the Bible is good, because let's not misrepresent the argument. You know, there aren't uh, other Christians or Roman Catholics out there saying, well, the Bible is bad and we need to get rid of it. Um, it's simply the idea that there are instances in which the Bible isn't enough for us to really know what to do. And we have to have an external source of authority that basically comes in and settles the argument, you know, is the arbiter in the dispute. Uh, and that really is the role of the, the, the Pope when, you come, when it comes to the idea of papal infallibility and uh, declaring something, uh, what they would say, ex cathedra, which means just that I'm speaking from the chair of Peter. Uh, if you ever talk to somebody who tries to defend this idea, they'll say, well, the Pope's only used it a few times throughout history. It's not something that happens all the time. But why do they use it? They use it because the church doesn't have enough, uh, apparently, information already, and they need some external authority who speaks for God to come in and give that infallible rule of faith. I would argue that verse 17 contradicts that. When it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that means that Scripture is sufficient to do that. Now, uh, along with that, I want to point out, and it's been mentioned several times from the pulpit here, Scripture is not giving us an exhaustive list of exactly what behaviors to carry out in every single circumstance that we may find ourselves in, right? Um, it doesn't teach us where we should move when we grow up and graduate from college. It doesn't tell us who we should marry, but it gives us the framework within which we operate to honor God and to give Him glory. Furthermore, even in moral situations, I think there can be ambiguity at times. I mean, let's just pretend you're an employer and you're... Um, your employee has committed a terrible sin or crime, and you're trying to decide, should I fire him or should I forgive him and show grace? Uh, you know, somebody uh, in a different circumstance may come to a different conclusion than you do, and that's okay. I'm not suggesting that if we just have the Bible, uh, there should absolutely be no discussion about what we should ever do in life, right? We just go to the Bible and we find it on page 33, and that's all we have to do. What I am suggesting is that the requirement that we have as servants of Christ to honor him with our speech, with our conduct, uh, we have enough in Scripture we don't need an extra biblical source of authority to come in and, and settle the disputes that we may have. Furthermore, when we see Christian men or godly elders uh, gathering together to try to make an informed decision, to try to be discerning with respect to uh, certain circumstances and situations that may come up, recognize the difference between that and what I'm talking about here is these are fallible men 
that do sin and do fall short, trying to do their best to submit to the authority of Scripture and make a decision based on that. Over and against the idea that somehow these men have the same authority as that which is breathed out by God. Hopefully that's making sense, right? And so I think verse 17 gives us, again, a reminder of why the Reformers felt so strongly about the reality that Scripture is sufficient, that we have all that we need in the Bible. Any thoughts or comments on that particular point? Go ahead, Christy. Absolutely, about of, of, like having adult children, mm-hmm. and mom was talking about like, well, should you charge them rent? Can they live with you? Mm-hmm. Should you blah blah blah? And she said, I'm not going to tell you. The Bible doesn't say it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what I do. Sure. Like, so that's the thing. I mean, if people are going to call on that differently. You can use biblical principles mm-hmm. to decide what you're going to do, mm-hmm. but you don't. It's not right for me to say, oh, you must do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I ought to also say that I have a friend who has a bunch of children, and she, when she talks about having a bunch of children, she says, that's what's my conviction, mm-hmm. to have a bunch of children. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say, the Bible says that you have to have a sure. bunch of children, she, but she says my conviction. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think that's right. And furthermore, just, just to add to what you're saying, I mean, I certainly would not, uh, I would push back against somebody who says, yeah, there is an authority out here who can tell us these things. Now, um, you know, if we're thinking about, say, Roman Catholicism, the Pope, obviously they don't usually get that specific, but the point is, yeah, I don't think anybody else has the authority to come in and say, well, Scripture doesn't say it, but here's what, you know, you have to believe infallibly, and you can't question it, you know, um, and we could go on for a long time on that issue, but I agree with, with the general point there, you know. There's a lot of times where we have to kind of use our discernment and our judgment, but that doesn't mean that the Scripture is not good enough, right? Secondly, I don't think and, and this is probably more controversial, but um, I'm not really sure that I can skip through it without saying it. I don't think that um, God, we should be looking for extra biblical words from God today. Right? I think that God's scripture is sufficient in the sense that it equips us for every good work. Um, I, this is pretty commonplace, it feels like, in evangelicalism today, where people are running around saying, God spoke to me and told me to do this and told me to do that and uh, told me to, to move here or marry this person. Um, I would challenge that. Uh, I don't think God is speaking to you. Uh, you may have an intuition. Uh, furthermore, I want to be clear about something. I actually think that you could be being led by the Spirit, but let me explain how that works. Uh, to be led by, let, let me, let's just say that I'm sitting in church and I say, man, the, the Spirit led me to go talk to David today, and I really needed to share with him a word of encouragement that I had uh, garnered from my previous Bible reading. Now, I could sit there and agree wholeheartedly with the person that says the Spirit led me to do that, but here's what I think is actually happening. I'm meditating on God's word day and night as I'm commanded to do. Uh, the Spirit has illuminated the scripture as it says that he will. And I, in my meditation on that, think to myself, you know what, there's somebody who could use some encouragement. Let me go uh, share with him what God's word has taught me about this particular issue. Right? I think that's very fair to say that I'm led by the Spirit. But again, let's go back to the text here. That is very different from God breathing something into me and saying, go tell David XYZ, right? which is how a lot of people communicate it today. It's almost as if there's this audible voice that pops into their head and says, go do this, right? And I'm saying, no, I don't think that's biblical. I think that the Christian follows the leading of the Spirit through understanding how the Spirit has spoken, mainly God's Word, and then following the convictions that should flow out of that understanding. Is that making sense to people? So I don't want to you know, quench the Spirit, but I want to understand properly how the Spirit works in my life. It's not um, some, some mystical experience where I'm just sitting there and I get zapped and all of a sudden... Uh, God is speaking to me. Now, I already have everything I need to be complete and equipped for every good work in Scripture. Um, it's reflecting on that that moves me to do the things that honor God and glorify Him. Again, I recognize that, uh, especially that second point, seems to be more contentious and controversial today. So I'm 
open to the pushback or any comments people might have with regard to it, but I do think that we have everything we need for life and godliness and that we do have enough to be complete and equipped for every good work. And furthermore, uh, our pastor has uh, everything he needs in Scripture. And so if you're listening to somebody who's constantly telling you things that are outside of the Bible, um, I would love to ask them what they think about this particular verse. Anybody have any thoughts or comments on what's been said so far? You mentioned the pastor has what, what he needs. When a pastor steps behind the pulpit or is teaching or anything like that, there's an extra measure of responsibility that he's carrying. He's going to have to answer for every single soul that's in that building mm -hmm. at one time. And he there's there's an old word that's been used. I've heard it said in prayer, may, may you give the pastor function. Mm -hmm. May he be speaking your words. I say it sometimes when I'm praying for pastor. May it be your words through his lips. Mm -hmm. As long as it's a Bible, Bible believing and he's he's exegeting properly from the word of God. It's God's word mm -hmm. that's complete. Mm -hmm. it's, it's complete. And then, and then the word equipped. So what has equipped something? Mm -hmm. God has equipped the mm -hmm. man of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry. Somebody <laughs> something. Uh, it is true. And one other thing I should clarify is, because um, sometimes people take it to an extreme that I don't think is healthy. When I say that scripture is, is enough to make us complete and equipped for every good work, this isn't this idea that I should just go take my Bible, live in isolation. As long as I have a, my Bible in me, I, I'm going to be good enough, and I don't need to deal with anybody. We were talking before uh, this lesson about how some have forsaken the gathering together uh, of the saints, right? No, I mean, I do believe that God is, uh, has graciously gifted us with apostles, preachers, teachers, not, not apostles today, but I mean, the apostles of the church, the, the lay the foundation, the preachers, the teachers, the gift of community, of fellowship with God's people. Uh, so let's not neglect that. Um, we can certainly apply the pr biblical principle of iron sharpening iron. What we're saying, again, is that there's not an extra source of authority or revelation that adds to what Scripture already teaches. So um, don't hear me saying that you should just take your Bible and go by yourself somewhere. Um, because, again, you might be able to have enough there to be saved, but that's not God's will for his people, right? I mean, as, insofar as it depends on us, we should desire to bear one another's burdens, strengthen one another, in faith, you know, iron sharpening iron, um, not living as hermits somewhere, um, just trying to study the Bible and that's it. So I, I forgot to mention that, but sometimes we do see that kind of extreme side of things um, when we're talking about Scripture being sufficient. So let's continue on here. I can tell for sure I'm not going to get through everything that I wanted to get through today, but we are looking at chapter 4 here, which is the um, job description of a pastor is what I've called it. Right, this idea of um, uh, what a pastor ought to do. Bennett's already mentioned this, but the gravity that Paul communicates in the opening uh, verses of chapter 4 when he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. It's as if he's reminding Timothy that what I'm charging you to do ultimately will be judged by God himself, uh, that you have a high calling and a high responsibility. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, that not all should desire to be teachers, uh, for this is a weighty and uh, noble task to desire, and you will be held more accountable. But if you're going to do it, here's your responsibility. Preach the Word. That's pretty much it, right? Uh, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so the reality is that, I mean, I don't know how many of you pay too much attention to other 
churches or other movements, but it does seem, again, that we've lost uh, much of this, that the Bible is maybe at best kind of an accomplice to the main message, but we're not necessarily focusing our church service or our Sunday school hour on the Bible in a lot of context today. Uh, it's more about tips on life and how to you know, maybe raise your kids better or get along with your spouse. Uh, the Bible might be peppered in there uh, a little bit, but it's not the central focal point. Again, I would argue that, according to Paul's words here to Timothy, that the main responsibility of the pastor is to preach the word. Um, that there's really no other idea listed here. There's no church growth strategy uh, or vision statement. In fact, if you wanted a vision statement for the church, I think we could just regurgitate what's been said. Our vision statement at Trinity Baptist is to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching all of God's people. I mean, that, that's a vision statement for the church right there. Right? And um, I know it's become commonplace to almost turn the church into like a, a mini uh, business model or a, a non-for-profit that's trying to, to grow its numbers, but I, I do believe that the responsibility that the pastor has is to preach the word. Any thoughts or uh, comments on this idea? What would be your take on in season and out season? I think I know. You know, I have my thoughts, but what what does what do you see that? I think it means all the time. Right? Yeah, I'm taking it from John MacArthur, but uh, I do I do appreciate that. Right, it says regardless of what it means, you're either in season or out of season. Right. And I think all of us can use context clues to probably deduce that you know whether it feels good or doesn't feel good, whether you're facing. Uh, praise or whether you're facing opposition, which you know we do need to be reminded of that because it's much easier for me to stand up here before all of you who largely agree with what I have to say and you know preach the word, right? But when I'm standing before a bunch of people who probably want my head after that, it's going to be harder to do, right? But I, I do think that's what he has in mind here is um, regardless of whether it means you are encouraging somebody or praising them or you're you know church disciplining them or rebuking them, which is largely what he talks about after that, you know, be ready, right? And it's not going to be easy. So I don't know if you agree or don't agree. But I, I also see in season is standing behind the pulpit. There's a certain time that you're supposed to be, but then also when you step down from the pulpit. Sure. So it's still at all times. Yeah. But there's a double thing there. That, you know, there's times when, when you're preaching that you know, you're supposed to be faithful, but even when you step out of the pulpit. That's interesting. I didn't really consider that from that perspective. Again, regardless of what it means, it's, it's, all, it's all the time, right? It's not... Uh, when you're at this particular season, don't do it, right? It's all the time, but that's I didn't consider it from that vantage point. Um, again, I talked about earlier, how do we apply this? Well, number one, I think we can use this to evaluate our teachers, our preachers. Uh, is the pastor, teacher, preacher doing what this verse commands him to do? Is he reproving, rebuking, and exhorting? Uh, again, just speaking from past experiences, this tends to be lacking in a lot of Christian circles today. Uh, and I understand why. I mean, obviously, we just talked about it. It's not fun to stand up and confront somebody, but reproving and rebuking means that the pastor, the teacher, ought to be calling out certain things that we need to be cognizant of and even repent of, right? I mean, if, if the pastor is not making you feel just a little bit uncomfortable, uh, then perhaps he's not doing his job. And I guess one of the ways we could evaluate this just practically not only for evaluating our pastor, but evaluating our own lives, is when is the last time that you've gone home after a Sunday service and made a change in your life or felt convicted to change, right? Uh, if you come into the congregation every week and go home and there's no effect on your life, it's probably a sign of one of two things. One, that the pastor is not taking this charge seriously. And I think that, I think I speak for everybody here, but you can disagree if you'd like, that I think our pastor does take that very seriously. 
And so I don't think that's it. The second thing would be you're not taking it seriously, right? And understanding that I ought to be feeling convicted at times in scripture or in, in the service, right? In the preaching and proclamation of God's word. So the question is, when is the last time that's happened? You know, when is the last time you've, you've heard a message from the pulpit here uh, and, and said, you know, I actually think I need to change. Um, if that's not happening, um, again, maybe let's, let's take this charge a little more seriously because I doubt that there's anybody here that says I've already made it and I'm already perfect. I don't need to change. But that's the, I think the practical application from this text. Again, we also use it to evaluate pastors or teachers who maybe aren't doing that. Um, it's very common to see the, the absence of the conviction of sin. One of the things that impressed me uh, when I came to Trinity Baptist for the first time and looked at the church covenants, or not church covenants, but the, yeah, I guess the church covenant, what it's called, the, the handbook, whatever it is, um, is that we actually practice church discipline. Um, that was not even in the vocabulary of places I went before, right? I mean, if somebody did something that was, out of alignment with God's word, it wasn't necessarily celebrated, but you don't you don't say anything to anybody about it. You just let them go about their way, right? And I think that's disregarding the uh, command of of Scripture here, when it says that the whole idea of a pastor's job is to reprove, rebuke, and correct. Right? We have to have that element in, involved in what we're doing. So it's not going to be fun at all times, as Jay already mentioned. There's going to be people that, when you do this, they're going to leave. They're going to go find somebody else who won't do it. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why some of those churches have bigger numbers. You know, I mean, you don't have to be confronted or reproved or rebuked and you just kind of sit there in the back, feel good about yourself, go home at the end of the service. Um, you're much more likely to draw a crowd if you do it that way. But uh, that is the job description of a pastor. And again, as I mentioned, let's pray for our pastors, for our leaders. I don't want to put Tim on a pedestal, but as we've talked about before, I mean, he is the only pastor here. Uh, maybe at some point there will be other elders, but... Um, you know, so let's pray for Tim that he has uh, the ability, the strength, the motivation to say the hard things, to reprove people where it's necessary, to rebuke, uh, to exhort, um, but do it with complete patience and teaching. And I think this is where we get that image of a shepherd, right? When you think about a shepherd, which is also a word used to describe a pastor, uh, you're thinking about somebody whose main motivation is really the love of the sheep. He's not domineering. He's not just going out and whacking his sheep with his staff, right? He, he, he want, his, his end goal is actually to get them to their destination safely, to see them well-fed, nourished, right? And this really ought to be the goal of the pastor. So even though he's to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort, he's to do it with complete patience and teaching. Uh, he's to do it with an understanding that all of us are sinners, including him, and that we all need the grace given by God. If you think about, you know, again, the, the kind of the, picture that comes to mind, or at least for me, when you consider the role of a shepherd, it is somebody who is you know, gentle with the sheep, but fierce with the opposition. Um, and sometimes we kind of forget that. I mean, you think of a shepherd as somebody who just got to go lay in the meadow and play harmonica all day. But the reality is that you know, shepherds in biblical times had very uh, laborious tasks. And sometimes you would even have to ward off a vicious attacker, a vicious beast, right, who was coming to uh, assault the sheep. And so I think if we kind of use that analogy for that of a pastor, for the job of a pastor, and we ask ourselves, when should, when should we be aggressive with our rebuke? When should we be you know, calling people out by names versus when should we be tender and gentle? A lot of it comes back to, are these people that we consider to be sheep or are these people that we consider to be wolves ready to attack the sheep, right? And Pastor Tim has mentioned this before too, but when you look at Jesus's conduct, you know, when he confronted the Pharisees, he was often very aggressive. I mean, he, he viewed them as basically the wolves that were attacking the sheep, right? And I'm going to beat them off in whatever way possible. Uh, but when he talked to people such as the woman at the well, uh, it was a much more 
uh, gracious uh, conversation, uh, soft-hearted, tender, right? Because the idea was that this person is somebody who um, is desiring to repent. And I understand that we don't know who the sheep are. You know, Jesus did. But when we kind of discern that this person is actually somebody who appears to be interested in being one of the sheep, I think we respond with love and kindness and patience. Um, however, when we have people that are threatening the sheep, it's the pastor's responsibility to protect them. Um, just like it's the shepherd's responsibility to protect the sheep. And so we ought to see a more aggressive and, and maybe even um, confrontational or uh, argumentative attitude when it's somebody who's threatening to potentially do what these false teachers did just a little bit earlier in chapter 3, lead weak women astray who are burdened with sins uh, and various passions. And so again, I think in chapter 4, first couple of verses, we have the job description of a pastor. I didn't get into the, the third thing that I wanted to talk about. I'll have to do it next week. But um, anybody want to share anything that we can pray back to God after our study today? I gave you a softball for one of them. How can we pray in light of what we read? Go ahead. Well, what you were just saying just now reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, mm -hmm. encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So here in 14, Paul is saying patient. It's over here in that verse that you were, that we were studying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Verse 2 in chapter 4? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it is, and it is a hard line to walk. I know that that's discussed a lot. I mean, how do you? When do you know to just yeah. be patient versus? So the prayer I think would be that thank God that we're not disciplined for everything that we do wrong. Yeah. There is grace. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Let's see, let's pray for that. I, I was going to say let's pray for uh, our pastors and leaders as well, right? That they would have this strength and. Um, and let's thank God for his word, that uh, it is enough to equip us for every good work. God, we thank you for um, the fact that you have not left us in the dark with regards to your, your will. Uh, you've given us your revealed will, and it's enough to equip us for every good thing that we can do, everything that is pleasing to you, everything that is honorable to you. Um, we can derive the principles needed to come to that decision from your word. And we pray that as a result of that, we would be more compelled to study your word and know what's in it, uh, myself included. We pray for uh, our pastors and our leaders who are responsible to teach it and to shepherd the flock, that they would be given greater conviction, uh, greater strength, uh, greater fortitude with respect to their, their spiritual convictions, uh, and that they would be able to do so with patience uh, and teaching. And we do thank you that, that patience includes um, the fact that we have sinned and fallen short and we've been shown the patience that is commanded here. So we pray that we would do that for others. And again, we ask that in some ways we could all be uh, pastors in the way that we evangelize others. We thank you for this in your name. Amen. Amen.